0: You're wondering whether or not you want to hang out at this church. I mean, mark the calendar off because we're going to be going through this for a while. We can't just brush over Revelation. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to dive into and unpack as as we go through. Uh, and there's all of us come here with different ideas of of Revelation, we, depending on whether you grew up in a certain denomination or whether you grew up outside of the church. You may have different ideas of what you think Revelation is about and it's there's so many things going on but just as a bit of an experiment uh let me throw this out to you when you hear the word beast what do you think and you can call these out what do you think of when you hear the word beast a beast of burden, like a donkey okay yeah strength oh yeah that's good i didn't see that one coming strength yeah good scary Scary beast, yeah? Six, You're diving right in. Don't get ahead of us. Chapter 13, I believe. Let's wait, let's wait. Scary creature, animals maybe. Well, if, if you were in my house on a Saturday morning watching soccer and you saw an amazing goal, my son or I might yell out, what a beast. What a beast. Now, when you think of the word goat, what do you think of? Greatest, you're so hip, Andrea. I mean, Michael Jordan, the ultimate goat, greatest of all time. Now, in my, in my logic, I think you can only label one person a goat. You can't call other people goats. It can only be one goat, greatest of all time. Otherwise, it's lost all meaning. But that would be, I mean, to, to think of a goat as, as a creature with four legs and horns, I mean, that's so 10 years ago. Now goat has a whole different meaning. And in our home, when someone says goat, the the first thing that comes to mind is not a little creature like a creature at a petting zoo. You think of a a gifted athlete. So in order, in in our house, just in our home, to translate what the word beast means or what the word goat means, you need to know a little bit about our family and the context that that language is being used in. Today we're going to do some more groundwork uh, we started some groundwork two weeks ago, and, and what I've titled these two first uh, messages is Reading Revelation Responsibly. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, most of us, whether we grew up in the church or outside of the church, we come with presuppositions, we come with decisions already in our mind of what certain things mean. And uh, we did a handful of kind of clarifying a few weeks ago, uh, things about what, what kind of book Revelation is. The revelation of John, ultimately a revelation of Jesus Christ. What is apocalyptic literature? We usually associate the word apocalypse with zombie. Zombie apocalypse. And therefore, the word apocalypse has lost all meaning. The word apocalypse just means an unveiling. Something that always was, but we're going to rip the top off so you can see it. Uh, so if you were not here, I would encourage you, you can go on to our CA Church YouTube channel. And you can uh, look at that message from a few weeks ago. And I would say to you now, if you want to look at notes online, you can go to cachurch.info. Yes, you're allowed to go on your phone or your iPad right now. Um, And go to cachurch.info, go to Sermon Notes, Town Center, and you can find notes for today's sermon as well. But right now I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to Revelation chapter 1. And today we're just going to look at verses 9 and 10, and then we're going to do a quick spread of a handful of themes That go on in Revelation. But out of respect for God's word, I'm going to invite you to stand. This is something that the the ancient Israelites did. We see this in Nehemiah when they're reading the law. They're reading the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. They stood in respect for God's word. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 10. The Apostle John writes this. He says, I, John... Your, he's writing to churches, churches who are going through difficulty. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering. That word suffering literally is the word tribulation. And in, God's, uh, and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast, Jesus. This book comes with so much baggage. It comes with so much misuse in many ways, um, but it also comes with such beauty, such a beautiful revealing that you uh, you reign over all creation and you reign. Not over, not only over space, but also over time, over all of his just. So I pray that as we unpack that today and through this series, this would encourage us, give us comfort, a great, give us a greater vision for our own personal lives, our own discipleship and, and, and path that we walk. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. I want, I'm, imagine you're John, you're the Apostle John, You you walked with Jesus. You saw Jesus heal the unhealable. You saw him love the unlovable. You saw him do miracle after miracle. Uh, You saw crowds gather and then crowds dissipate as as he preached and and preached the kingdom, as he called people to a new kingdom. And then you saw when his kingdom pushed up against earthly kingdoms, when his form of following God pushed up against the religious uh, views of the day. You watched as Jesus was taken captive, as he was ridiculed, as he was beaten, as he was crucified. And then you witnessed his, his glorification. You witnessed his, his resurrection. And so after this resurrection, you hung out with him for 40 days and all those around you and up to 500 other people, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us, who witnessed the living, uh, resurrected Christ until he took you up a mountain and you watched him go into the clouds. And he said, I'm going to return like this one day. And you are pumped. You've witnessed all of this for the last three years. And so you and and those around you, your buddies, you travel all over the known world to tell people this beautiful news of the king of all creation who has proven he is the son of God in power because he was He was killed, and then he was resurrected. And you've traveled everywhere you can. You have seen different communities grow in the proclamation that Jesus is Lord of all creation. And then one by one by one, all of your friends have slowly passed away, been persecuted, killed by the Romans, all the while proclaiming Jesus is in control, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, until you find yourself, as John says, put on the, uh, the Isle of Patmos, which was uh, a rock quarry where they would put criminals. You're all alone. You're worried about the church. All your friends have passed away. Well, you've proclaimed Jesus is going to come again and make everything right. Imagine the questions that you would have as John. Where are you in all of this? Where, why do you seem so far away when you said you would never leave us or forsake us? What can I possibly look to to find strength in the middle of all this struggle and, and, and the power of the world that seems to be pushing in on your church? And what do I say to a scared, disillusioned church? What do I say to a church that's being lured in to this world? To say, give up, give up on Jesus and just buy in to what the world has to offer. That's the situation that John finds himself in. That's the situation that the church was in when John gets a visit from Jesus. And we're going to unpack that a bit more next week. This vision of Jesus and what that all means. But imagine it's been 60 years since you saw him ascended and then he shows up on the Isle of Patmos in amazing fashion. Which we'll unpack next week. The apocalypse of John, the Revelation of John, which is really the Revelation of Jesus, is apocalyptic literature, and it has a very important purpose. Apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature has a very important uh, a story to tell and that and, and and gift to give. Its aim is to tell us that things are bigger than they seem. Things are not only as they seem; they are much bigger than. They seem. There is more than just the now. There is more than just the here. And so in Revelation, there are many things to gaze upon. There are many things to draw our eyes here and there as we will see. But they should never draw our eyes away from the Lamb. The Lamb is always the center. Michael Gorman, a great New Testament theologian, says this. Do we have that quote up there? Because Revelation is not about the Antichrist, but about the living Christ. It's not about a rapture out of this world, but about faithful discipleship in this world. That is, like every other New Testament book, Revelation is about Jesus Christ. We can't get our eyes off that. And so the aim of Revelation, first, is, is comfort. To, to a church with questions, a church calling out, like, like we hear throughout Revelation, please come. Please come, please come, quickly come. We hear this over and over. In the middle of that call is, the, is revelation is meant to bring comfort. Uh, G.K. Beale says this. He says the goal of revelation. The goal of revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out His purposes even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, and apparent satanic domination, and even in the midst of COVID comfort comfort to my people but this is something else that is the aim of revelation and this is important it's call and its aim is resistance resistance many historians and theologians argue that revelations is what they call resistance literature it's like propaganda we always think of the word propaganda as a negative it's not always a negative but it's push it is pushing a kind of resistance don't bow to the world Don't bow to the world. Don't bow to Rome. Don't bow to the emperor, to, to the empty, limited promises of the world. Michael Gorman says again, he says, "...calling Revelation resistance literature, literature is appropriate because one of the primary prophetic purposes of Revelation is to remind the church both then and now not to give in to the demands or practices of a system that is already judged by God and is about to come to its demise." But Revelation is not just a document that stands against something. Like all biblical prophecy, it promotes true worship of the one true God. Expressed not merely in formal liturgy, but also in faithful living. The practice of having no gods besides God. Us to, it calls us to discipleship. And what we'll see as we go through Revelation, it, Revelation is a constant taking back of titles that belong only to God. King of kings, Lord of lords. The one who sits on the throne. Every page in Revelation is full of it. Taking back titles that Rome has said belong to them. Taking back titles that the emperor has said belong to them. And so Revelation is political resistance literature. Following Babylon, which is what Christians were calling Rome at the end of the first century. Following Babylon and its rulers who sit on a temporary throne. Giving in to the temptations and wealth she offers leads to a destructive end. But following the Lamb who sits on the eternal throne at the center of all things leads to life. And I can't wait to unpack that image of worship around the throne. It's so beautiful. But the call is to not give in to the world empires. Now, to, to open the eyes of, of all who, who hear and read in search of comfort and power to resist, Revelation uses several tools. And these tools are beautiful tools, but they're not the kinds of tools we find in other literature. They're not the kind of tools we find in history and in typical pastoral letters. They're more like the kind of tools we find in poetry. The Roman world was full of tools that they used to push their agenda, to let you know they were in control. Every city was stamped on every street corner with symbolism. Symbols like statues of the emperors or the gods or an an eagle. The statue wasn't really the emperor and the gods weren't supposed to really be the, the gods, although it came very close. The eagle wasn't really Rome. They were symbols to represent the power and the influence of Rome. And so Revelation is a push back against that. We're going to find some new symbols and we're going to push back. Against us. So symbolism is using one thing to represent or stand for something else. Symbols are non-literal images reflecting true realities. Now one helpful example of, of how we ought to look at imagery or symbolism in the apocalypse of John is to look at political cartoons. So I want to show you a cartoon here, a political cartoon, and I want you to take 30 seconds to just look at it and analyze it before you even say anything. So go ahead and show that picture and take in some of the different things that you see here. So this is not an old political cartoon. This is a very current political cartoon. So does someone want to take a shot at what you, some of the things maybe that we're seeing in this, this picture, in this cartoon? Hong Kong? How do we know it's Hong Kong? The flag. Tell me about the flag. What do you know about the flag? Not a lot, OK? It's red. It's red shows its association with mainland China. It's the exact same color, red. Does anyone know what the image is on the flag? You're absolutely right. It's a flower. And it has five petals on it. Does anyone know why it has five petals? And you can't really tell from here, but there's five stars in those petals that are also taken from the mainland China flag. Okay? So there's, this, so there's symbolism just on that one small corner. Good job. Right in that one small corner. That tell us something about what's going on here. What are some other things? <laughs> there's a pretty large thing we might know. Yeah. Go ahead, Mike. A giant dragon. Nice. I didn't, oh, I didn't see that. That's good. <laughs> yeah, there's a giant red dragon. Absolutely, buddy. What might that giant red dragon represent? Symbolism, Symbolism of China. Is there an actual giant red dragon roaming around Hong Kong? <laughs> help, help the class out. Help the class out. Okay, now, at the bottom, what do we see? Or well, what do we think we see? We see people, okay? How many? Lots, okay? Thousands, thousands, thousand people. Thousand people equals lots. We'll look at that later. Does, what do these people have? They've got umbrellas. Does anyone know anything, why these people have umbrellas? Come on, man, you're on a roll. Right, right. So there's a, ha- and there's a handful of things. Initially, these umbrellas w- began as a way to kind of push back even against canisters that were being thrown at them. But then they found they were useful for blocking their faces from cameras. Um, and they became kind of a, kind of a symbolism of, of the, uh, the protests that were going on in Hong Kong. Um, One one writer says this, the umbrella has been transformed from a normal everyday object to a symbol of defiance, a symbol of resistance, self-autonomy, and individualism. Now, this is happening on the world stage right now, okay? Yet even us in the world right now have have to know something about the world, and I didn't even know about the umbrella thing until two weeks ago. That was new to me. I live in 2020. Okay, so let's look at, at... I've got one more here for you. This one might be a little bit easier to, to interpret. I mean, who wants to take a shot? Michael. Right, right, the election. So we have, we have the, the elephant representing the Republicans, the Democrats represented by a beast of burden, by a, by a donkey. Now, imagine... If this was put into poetical language, two beasts standing on their hind legs, one an elephant, one a beast of burden, a donkey, taller than a great white palace, struggling with tug-of-war. What does tug-of-war mean? War with a rope. Think of the symbolism used in colors. Stars, that all means something, draped in red, white, and blue, having a great battle. Imagine 2,000 years from now, someone trying to dissect both of these pictures. They would have to know some context, but they also tell a powerful picture in both cases. A picture that's far more powerful if it's just written out like a letter. Far more goes right past our mind, goes into our heart. That's part of what Revelation is doing. But, the, but imagine the kinds of conclusions we would come to without context. A great dragon over a city of the white flower with the five stars. I mean, that sounds like Revolution. Revelation. Come on. And maybe like Revolution. There, but there would need to be some unpacking. Uh, in, 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 in both of these, there needs to be unpacking of, of numbers. There needs to be unpacking of colors. There needs to be unpacking of, of images. And that's all true in Revelation as well. So first of all, I'm going to go through kind of a, a checklist of some of this kind of equals this, this kind of equals this. It's not everything in Revelation, but it's a good starting point. If you're not on the notes now on, online... Um, at church.info, You can find them there later on today too, but all of this will be on there as well. So some of the popular numbers in Revelation. Three, and we see this in in chapter one, verses four to three, but it it usually has to do with divinity or false divinity, someone trying to fake divinity. So in, in verse four of chapter one, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. We'll get to seven in a second. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is still to come. From the sevenfold spirit before his throne. We'll get to seven in a second. Four usually refers to the fullness of creation. The earth was thought to have four corners. The cre- four creatures are meant to represent all of creation. In Revelation 4 6 to 8, um, they, they were meant to represent all of creation worshiping their creator. Revelation 7 1, we see four angels taking care of the entire earth because it took four, one to be on each corner of the earth. Uh, Revelation 7.1, then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. When we see the number seven, we need to think, and most of us are familiar with this because it's all throughout scripture, is the idea of perfection or fullness. We have the seven churches in chapters two to three, which we'll be walking through in January. The sevenfold spirit, which was just in verse 4, means the fullness of God's spirit, the perfect, full spirit of God. We'll talk about seven seals, seven bulls, seven trumpets, seven eyes, seven horns. There's a lot of sevens in here. Six, on the other hand, is imperfection and false divinity. It's like, eh, it seems like there's something, but something's a little off. It's what's been known as the number of the beast. Right, Tony? Yeah. In Revelation 13, 18. When we hear the number 12 or multiples of 12, it's a full representation of those who follow and belong to God or belong to the Lamb. When we talk about the elders, we talk about the 144,000. All those kinds of things. Now, this is the hard part is that the label of days or weeks or years are not as important when it comes to numbers. It's more the symbolism of what those numbers mean. That's, we'll have to keep that in mind. When we hear the word thousand, it's not necessarily an exact number. It's a large number or an uncountable number. Much like we would have said thousand people holding umbrellas. Well, we don't, we didn't go like this. But it was a large number. Revelation 5.11 says, Then I looked again and I heard the voice of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. The binding of the dragon in Revelation 20, uh, uh, Revelation 22 to 7, in the reign of Christ, is a thousand years. In, in apocalyptic literature, a thousand means a lot of years, maybe uncountable. And there'll be more of that as we, as we touch and as we, we go through that. But usually numbers that are used in Revelation are not numbers you can check off, like, oh, we've done that one, we've done that one. It's not usually how numbers are used in apocalyptic literature. So we need to respect that as we interpret it. The second thing that is used is colors. Man, Revelation is just exploding with colors. We talked about the throne and the rainbow colors in the song that we just sang. So here's here's some of the, the colors that that pop up in Revelation. White on, on the, 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 the hair of the... The son of man's hair in, in one fourteen, White usually represents victory or, or resurrection or purity. We see it in the clothing of the martyrs in, chapters th- in chapter 3, 4 to 5. The throne of God is white in, in, verse, in chapter 20. When we see the word red, we think violence and, and bl- power and, and blood. Think of the, the horse of judgment, which is red. Purple, decadence and power and overdoing it. And we see this with the, the tempting woman, I'm going to call her, because there's children present. The tempting woman in Revelation 17. You can read it later. Black represents death and disaster. Pale green, the, 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 one of the horsemen, is just pale green represents death. They all have meaning. Like the color of the American flag, like the amount of stars on the American flag, the amount of stripes... The the stars on the flower of the flag of Hong Kong. So we pay attention to the numbers. We pay attention to the colors, but we also need to pay attention big time. <laughs> that sounded so theological. We've got to pay attention big time to the Old Testament references. The Old Testament references. Scholars estimate that there are as many as 278 out of 404 verses in Revelation contain references. To the Old Testament. Three-quarters of the verses refer to Old Testament. There are over 500 allusions to Old Testament texts. 500. That's more than all of Paul's letters put together. So looking just at the first chapter, just at the first chapter of Revelation, Revelation 1, 5 points to Psalm eighty nine twenty seven, talking about the ruler of all the kings of the earth, ruler of all the nations. Revelation 1:6 points to Exodus 19:6 and the kingdom of priests. Revelation 1:7 points to Zechariah 12:10 and the mourning over the pierced one. Revelation 1:13 to 15 points to Daniel 7:13 to 14 and Daniel 10:5 to 6 with this description of Jesus as the son of man which we're going to unpack next week. Revelation 1:15 we've hardly even moved Revelation 1.15 points to Ezekiel 1.24 when he talks about the the Son of Man has a voice like thundering waves, like rushing waves. Revelation 1.16 points to Isaiah 49.2 and the sword of the mouth representing wisdom and knowledge and judgment. So I'll tell you, anyone who argues, as some have in the last couple of years, that we can unhitch the Old Testament from Christianity is going to have a real hard time understanding Revelation. And the majority of the New Testament and the Gospel. Don't get me started. Sadly, many are more likely to look forward than back when they're interpreting Revelation. We need to be very careful. The Old Testament is an important tool, possibly the most important tool, when interpreting Revelation properly. And finally, the most entertaining, and frightening tool that's used in Revelation is the use of images, the use of images. Again, here's a, here's a a short bit of references for some of the, the bigger images that are used in Revelation, and we'll touch on all of these and many more over the next couple months. Babylon refers to Rome, but more than just Rome, the power of empire, which we will talk about. The dragon refers to Satan. The tempting woman, or the whore of Babylon. The temptations of the world. The temptations that that the world tries to draw us in on. And we could make a list this morning of what some of those temptations are for us now. The bride is the church. And And the whole thing comes together with Christ and his bride at the end of Revelation. It's so beautiful. The lampstands, which we'll go into over the next few weeks, represent the church, the churches. The horsemen represent destruction. Horns represent power. There's no actual beast walking around with 22 horns on his head. He would just tip on his head the whole time. Like, they represent power. Marks on the forehead and anywhere else are about belonging. Who have you chosen? belong, chosen to belong to. Eyes all over wings and all over bodies represent knowledge and the ability to see deeper than just the surface. Double-edged swords represent truth and judgment, and we'll talk about that next week when we talk about his vision of Christ. So this is going to be fun. It is. It's going to be fun. And as I, I've said over the last uh, uh, two weeks ago when I first started this, I, I invite you to, to take in the whole thing uh, before we um, start di- start dividing over little things that, that we're concerned about. I just, with, and I, I need this myself. I come from a, a background, a theological background, that definitely wielded revelation in a dangerous way. It hurt me, it, hurt, it, it troubled a lot of my siblings, and a lot of the people I grew up with. And many, I see head no, heads nod when I say things like that. One of the pastors on our staff uh, grew up in the age of the Left Behind series. And after he saw the original movie, he said for three years when he would wake up, he would go and check his parents' room to make sure they weren't raptured. He was scared every morning. That is not the confidence, that is not the joy, that is not the resistance and the persistence, and the strength, and the beauty that revelation is meant to give us. Do you think the early church needed more fear? (laughs) So I get a, a kick out of talking to people who think, do you think this is the end? Well, I think that the church in the first century probably had more reason to think it was the end than I can't go sit in a coffee shop full of people. And the the heartbreaker for me is I can't go to a soccer game. (laughs) Can't even go to my son's soccer game right now. So that's why the focus of Revelation is Jesus. The focus of Revelation is Jesus at the center of all that plays out. In the center of tribulation, the movement of the beast, the influence of Babylon, John sitting on a rock, sunburnt in Patmos, Jesus is still on the throne. And in authority, he, he gives the writers authority to do what they do in chapter 6. It is not out of his control. They don't, nothing gets to happen. We will see this in chapter 6. Nothing gets to happen without the Lamb's approval and without his permission. Everything comes back to Jesus. Chapter 7. All the nations. I'm just going to give a, a quick jump through of, of the focus on the Lamb. Chapter 7. And this is how our lives ought to be. Uh, all the nations of the world congregate. And where are they? They're at the throne. Revelation 7.10, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb, who, who in all of creation has the power and the right to open the seals on the scrolls and to allow history to unfold. Revelation 4, 2. Instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in the heaven and someone sitting on it. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. Verse 10. The 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne. And they say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Three, for you created all things and they exist because you created what you pleased. Chapter five, verse 13. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, they sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever revelation 7:11 and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings and they fell before the throne with their face to the ground and worshiped god 21 i heard a loud shout from the throne saying look God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Jesus, quickly come. And there will be no more death. Jesus, quickly come. Or sorrow, or crying, or pain. Jesus, quickly come. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. I propose to you, That we are spending too much time wondering and fretting on who's sitting in the Oval Office when what we should be doing is contemplating, worshiping, and animating our lives by the vision of the Lamb on the throne. That is where discipleship comes from. That's where we get our marching orders. It isn't a program we follow or a book we read or the right version of predestination or whatever. It comes from getting our eyes firmly focused and transfixed on the throne where the Lamb is firmly seated. That's where our discipleship comes from. It's all about how will we live in light of the fact that things are not as they, as they seem. That things are bigger than they seem. How will we view elections? How will we view world conflicts? How will we view pressure from our culture to bow to public opinion on matters of moral conviction. When we see the destiny of those who follow the lamb and those who follow the beast, when we live in light of the fact that things are bigger than they seem, fear will be less of a motivating factor in our lives, which will make room for compassion and mercy and love and service, even in the midst of uncertainty and even with those we firmly disagree with. The one on the throne says, look, I am making all things new. As his disciples, as a, as a royal priesthood, we are invited to be a part of that here and now. Living in the confidence of a larger, unconquerable kingdom of which you and I are citizens. This week... This week, there are going, things are just going to get uglier, okay? Things are just going to get uglier. You're going to look at the news. You're going to see stupid tweets, not just from the president. You're going to see stupid tweets from all sorts of people, all sorts of social media things posted, name-calling, accusations, rioting. There was more rioting last night, confusion, stupid, harmful remarks will be tossed by media and between your friends and family members on social media. How will this vision of John, of the Lamb on the throne, animate our interaction with the world? Because that's what it's meant to do. Let's pray. Oh, what a comfort it is, Jesus. (laughs) What a comfort it is to realize that you are firmly seated on the throne. And it's my prayer this morning that that would not just be head knowledge, that that would trickle to our hearts and that would animate our limbs. It would, it would move our tongue to speak words of life and peace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness to those around us, even those we adamantly disagree with. May we not uh, quickly jump to the same level of vitriol and, and poison that others do. Because we're not cornered. We're not in danger. Our story is set because we place our story firmly in your story. May that have real impact on how we live our lives this week, how we interact with the issues and the troubles, the chaos of the world. And may we this week, may it it be our prayer, Jesus, quickly come. Jesus, quickly come. Come in your influence in these situations, but come to bring all the wrong things right. Use us for the purposes of your kingdom, to draw other other eyes towards the Lamb on the throne. I pray we would do this as a church, and I pray we would do this as families, and I pray we would do this as individuals in Jesus' name who sits on the throne. Amen. Guys, I'm going to invite you to stand as I leave you with the benediction. Oh, I'm so excited about have you, have you sensed that? I'm so excited about this series. I really think it's going to do great things for us. Uh, just before I leave you with a benediction, our, our, our hope here is to, uh, to, get, to get us out the front doors so that we can wipe everything down and get things ready for the next group that's coming in at 11.15. And so I will leave that to you. And as you're traveling, have your masks on, please, that would be great. Let me leave you with these words. This is from the end of the letter from Jude. Now, all glory to God, because he's the one who deserves it. It's not Domitian. It's not the emperor. Who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. All glory, majesty, power, and authority are his before all time and in the present, and beyond all time. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.